This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and we have the 2021 Nobel Laureate Abdul Razak Gurna with us today. And I am so excited, and I'm going to try not to fangirl too hard because Afterlives is one of the most beautiful books I have read in recent memory. And I think everyone's pretty clear. I read a lot, even for the sh- even outside of the show. I read a lot. So Abdul Razak, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. We're very excited to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Can we start with Afterlives? I have a million questions for you, and I'm going to try and not pelt you with every single one of them. But Afterlives feels like a much more elegant, luminous, and a little bit wistful is a word that I saw applied to this book. And I have to say, you cover 50 years in the story of a country and a family in a community. And it's really beautiful, this book, but it also feels like there's a little bit less of an edge than there is in your previous books. And I'm wondering when you started working on Afterlives. Okay. Well, I don't know whether to address the edge or whether to address the question, which is we when I started both. working. <laughs> well, started working on it is easy because uh, I started working on it in 2018. Um, but in a way, I was thinking about it for a long time. I uh, wrote, uh, published rather, a book uh, for Paradise in 1994. So let me begin by telling you about that, because there's a connection. I had been thinking about uh, writing something about the war, that episode, that historical episode, 1914-18 war in our part of the world. Because I've been hearing about it as I was growing up because people were still speaking about the Germans and their ferocity, even though by this time they'd become a myth. But there was very little to read that I could find, partly because I didn't really know where to look. I came to know about that later as I you know, got to know how to uh, research better. But at the time, in 1984, this was when I started thinking about writing that. So then at that point, I wrote uh, a paragraph about the recruiting drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to put that away and do other things, write, live, work, etc. And it was many years before uh, various circumstances allowed me to return to that. But by this time, uh, I was interested in how it is that that person who joins the colonial army to fight against God knows what, he didn't know, uh, how he would have got to that point. How did people get to that point where they would join colonial armies to fight against people like themselves. Mm -hmm. So then I wrote that. In other words, I wrote the backstory to that ending. Then life goes on. I wrote other books and whatever, whatever, whatever. But I was still thinking about that that historical episode, that war, Mm -hmm. and the events that happened in that war. And I think after a good 20 or so years, I think I'd acquired enough information and knowledge by then to be able to return to that uh, moment and to write afterlives. So the two are connected in that way. It was delightful to realize that you were still turning these ideas around, that this is clearly something that you've been walking around with and thinking about 
Because colonialism, I mean, there are people in the world right now who think colonialism is something that, you know, happened and it's done and the empire has become, you know, pieces. And we're still living with that legacy. I mean, you left Tanzania in 1968 for Britain, if I remember correctly. 67. And you weren't immediately thinking about being a writer, but you were homesick enough to start making notes and start writing sketches. And then things expanded. And your first novel was Memory of Departure, and that was 87, so 20 years after you arrived in the UK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took a long time to get that uh, both uh, written properly. Um, I don't know how many revisions. And then to actually find a, an agent and publish it. Nothing unique. A lot of writers have this experience. There's a lot of love in afterlives. There's a lot of love between characters. There's a lot of love for the community. There's a lot of people sitting on porches and talking. And it's really wonderful and warm and generous in a different way from the earlier books. Maybe it's just getting old. <laughs> okay. When I say getting old, I don't mean it's just, uh, you know, kind of getting old and idiotic, but maybe also uh, learning kind of the way things are complex. Yeah. Uh, and and being uh, kind where kindness is, is necessary or is, is appropriate. Understanding a little more about the, um, you know, the struggles people have and, and, and so on. But in any case... If you're thinking about memory of departure as the edgy one, <laughs> clearly, yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, that was not only my first novel, but it was a novel uh, which, during the writing of which, despite several revisions and toning down and cooling down, uh, in which I was very angry about what I was writing about. Mm -hmm. um, that is uh, reflecting on all the things that, uh, that we do to ourselves. I mean, we. Right people from my part of the world. The various revisions were really kind of toning down and toning down and toning down. But that's a whole different experience, I think, also from a writing point of view. I think probably a lot of writers who keep on writing as opposed to writing two or three or one is that, you know, you write that thing that's closest to you, first of all. And in fact, sometimes you probably uh, otherwise later on regret that you kind of splurged it all out in the first novel. But in a way, that's it. So you say the things that are closest to you that hurt you most or that make you most angry. And, um, well, as time passes, of course, you learn to reflect a little more. You learn more. not so young. Um, so it's more that process than, you know, a kind of disavowing that edginess, as you call it. That, that also had its time and its place and its, or its integrity, I suppose. Um, but later you learn other things and you speak as well as, as truthfully as you can as it comes to you later. In time, though, it became clear that something deeply unsettling was taking place. A newer, simpler history was being constructed, transforming and even obliterating what had happened, restructuring it to suit the verities of the moment. This new and simpler history was not only the inevitable work of the victors who are always at liberty to construct a narrative of their choice, but it also suited commentators and scholars and even writers who had no real interest in us. And it feels like you're talking about the bridge that fiction allows us between the recorded history, 
certainly the recorded history of colonialism in the German and British legacy in Tanzania. But also now you're saying, I get to reclaim this. I get to take this out of sort of the formal history and put a real humanity to this. I mean, the characters in Afterlives are really vibrant and wonderful and complicated and sometimes a little prickly. <laughs> Can we talk about using your characters, though, and, and letting them take the story where it's going to take? Because obviously you're not writing a history of Tanzania. You're not writing a history of colonialism, but there is a deep legacy for all of this. And, and in some cases, it's very traumatic. I mean, I'm, I'm also thinking of things like colonialism and this sort of emphasis on cleanliness and order and status and all of those sort of civilized things that colonialism brings with it, which that's all debatable. But putting faces to your characters and giving them big beating hearts. I think what I was referring to in that Nobel lecture that you mentioned was uh, a more, um, slightly more complicated okay. idea uh, than simply challenging the colonial uh, discourse, the colonial narrative. Obviously, that had to be challenged, mm -hmm. obviously, um, because it was self-flattering and untrue. So, you know, it, that's straightforward. It had to be challenged. The more complicated thing, and that's, I think, what I was referring to, that it was, became clear to me that there is something here that has to be resisted, was partly the post-colonial narrative that seemed to have just simply taken over the colonial narrative mm -hmm. and describing its opponents as, or rather it's not opponents, I should say it's contestants, as opponents, and in terms of, uh, you know, kind of colonial histories. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the coast of East Africa and the way that uh, coastal people who for generations have been mixing themselves up with other people, uh, these are all now foreigners. And this is part of the narrative. This is taking over colonial narrative and now acting as the new authoritarian racists. So there was that. And then there was also uh, the way in which so much of the... Uh, um, shows the academic discourse about Africa, not coming from this kind of uh, situated uh, political position, uh, but really coming from another political position. This is progressive discourse says, we've got to support this, we've got to see this, we've got to see that. And they too, it seemed to me, were embracing a new form of a colonial narrative that simply sees oppressor and oppressed. Mm -hmm. So it's really resisting that and saying there's something much more complicated, actually, in the way people live than simply these big stories in which one is always right and the other is always wrong. That's a huge part of Afterlives. We have one character, Ilias, who, when we meet him, has come to town because he's been given a job. And he's very excited to have it. But he's also been raised by a German farmer. And he intends, sort of early in the book, to fight on behalf of the Germans against the British. Because he believes in Germany. And he believes in Germany's right to Tanzania. It's not a story we often hear. 
when we're seeing any kind of literature, especially the literature of Africa, but I mean, you don't often, he becomes Ascari. He's fighting on behalf of the colonial powers against his own people. But there's so many Africans did. Yeah. In fact, the colonial armies, the armies that fought in East Africa, mm-hmm. in Cameroon, uh, any did in North Africa, were Africans, as we would call them now. Mm-hmm. At the mm-hmm. time, they wouldn't have called themselves Africans. Right. And I think that's the. I think that's what made made it possible that there was there was not a, 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 an idea of being an African in the way right. that we now have. Uh, so people would have seen themselves as whatever affiliation, whatever ethnic affiliation, whatever tribe, clan, people they belong to. And so even if it were their neighbor, the neighbor may very well have been you know, an antagonist for ages. But in any case, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, colonial forces deliberately, I mean, administrations deliberately brought people from somewhere else, even though it's another, a part of Africa. So the Senegalese taken to Algeria to fight against North Africans. The Sudanese brought to um, Deutsche West Africa to uh, what then becomes Tanzania to fight these Africans. So you're not fighting your own people, in essence. It's only later that we, when we begin to have a sense of an African identity mm-hmm. that it seems so completely absurd and ironic that Africans are killing Africans to decide who would be their boss, who would be their master, who would be their colonial bully. And a lot of those borders that we see on the map today, though, were drawn by colonial powers. Absolutely. In Berlin in 1885 yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And to look at the map now and to see lines that were just not drawn by people who live in the place itself. The reason they, they drew those lines, of course, was for their own convenience. It's not that they were totally logical for their, from their own logic. Uh, mm-hmm. So very often rivers formed borders uh, or mountains from borders or something or or suspicion that there might be something rich and whatever you know, under the ground there, gold or something like that. Uh, so there was a logic, but it was a logic that was only to do with uh, colonial convenience. Um, and one of the consequences we were talking earlier on about colonialism, there's no ending. One of the consequences is that so much of the chaos uh, in so many parts of the formerly colonized world, not just Africa, the Middle East is another example. So much of the chaos is a result of these uh, arbitrary borders of convenience. Was Hamza the first character that came to you for Afterlives, or were you working on the on the larger sort of idea first? Because there are moments where I feel like he really has the soul of the story Story because so much happens for him in the course of his youth into adulthood, into marriage and fatherhood, and he seems to have the widest swing of a story arc. And I'm just wondering, did you build afterlives around him? Because I'm just I'm listening to what you're saying about the experience of fighting in places that aren't home, being taken away and sort of being slotted into colonialism, it seems like he's, Hamza really is the soul of this book. Well, certainly that was where I started. Uh-huh. Sure. Okay. That's where I started. 
Uh, and in fact, the very first thing I wrote uh, that became uh, this novel, uh, Afterlives, was uh, what is now the beginning of part three, which is Hamza, oh. Hamza returning to the town. And that, okay. that moment of uh, the boat approaching the harbor and whatever, that's, that was um, the very first morning of starting this book. I wrote that, those three or four paragraphs there. But since I also had a uh, desire from the beginning to bring Afia into the story, so what, I, what was going to happen in my way of thinking originally was that Hamza would appear in this town, this wounded man, this traumatized man. Somehow, I hadn't quite determined how, but he would somehow meet up with us here, uh, with a woman whose name um, doesn't matter, but with, with someone uh, whom he would grow fond of. And uh, she too is wounded in some other way that uh, he doesn't know about yet. Like, we don't know how Hamza is wounded at that. We would not have known in the original thinking. So these two wounded people come together and they tell each other their stories. This was how I was conceiving of it to begin with. And so then we learned their stories. Then I said, no, I won't do it like that. I will start and actually take them through the, the events so that by the time Hamza and Afia meet, we already know their stories, but they don't. Mm-hmm. So that's why then, it, instead of being the beginning, it became the middle of the book, because then we have to bring a fear up to the present, and we have to bring him up to the present as well. I have to say, I got very excited when I realized when they were going to meet and how it was going to happen. And I was really hoping that you were going to give them, I don't want to say a happy ending, but a good ending. And, and I was delighted to see how their story played out. And I also appreciate, though, we start in 1907, essentially, and move into roughly the early 60s, it feels like. I mean, there's a yeah, mention yeah. of 63 being a couple of years after independence kind of thing. And you're covering a lot of time. But in some cases, I mean, the Great Depression becomes a single line in a chapter hinting at the fact that, you know, a merchant has once again found himself in dire straits, and yet, and you keep moving through. So did you know that you were going to cover this much ground once you started rewriting and reworking everything? Or was that sort of the intent from the beginning was, I'm going to sit down and give you 50 years, because that's the only way to give context to these people in this time? I think pretty quickly, pretty soon, I was, yeah, it was going to take us all the way through to to independence. Mm -hmm. I think I, I knew it was going to be like that. Partly because once I'd got the story of Ilias in my mind mm-hmm. and the aftermath of the story of Ilias, once that was there, then I also um, knew that that story could not could not come out until much later. Uh, you it wouldn't have been possible to know the outcome yeah. until uh, much later. And it, it is as as I describe in in afterlives. It is also the case that it was after independence, the British would not have allowed that kind of movement uh, to Germany to investigate this, to mm-hmm. investigate that. But after independence, uh, what was then the Federal Republic of Germany, was called West Germany, mm-hmm. uh, became very friendly with what was Tanganyika at that point, and often. I remember this offered scholarships to people to go to Germany. And I thought, right, okay, that's how he's going to find out. He's going to go there and he's going to get the opportunity to make some research and so on. So in a way, it suited everything that we get to independence, 
a new world opens up, uh, people can now think back to that uh, past, that history, as, as history now. It's no longer a living, well, in a way it is, but you know, it's also past. Um, yeah, so I think I had that idea of the, the span of the years like that. You left Tanzania in 67. You end up in the UK. How did you end up in the UK instead of, say, Germany? Well, because we were a British colony. And I spoke a little bit of English. I didn't speak any German. (laughs) And actually, another reason was uh, I didn't particularly want to go to the UK. It was more a desire to to continue studying. I couldn't find anywhere that was cheap enough. Um, in nearby uh, that would have mm-hmm. taken us, which sounds rather ironic, but the only way, because I didn't know people in, the, in these different places, it would have had to be a boarding school of some kind, right. uh, and that was far too expensive. And it just so happened that I had a cousin who was a very close cousin, more like a brother, really, who was finishing his PhD at the University of London. So I you know how these things go. Yep. <laughs> So I wrote to him and I said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and get away from here. Can I come? And he said, yes, come. So I came. That's also why I ended up in Canterbury, because uh, he was doing his uh, PhD in agriculture mm-hmm. and at the University of London. And their, their agriculture department was, of course, not in London, but in the country, in the provinces. And it was just over here near Canterbury. So that's how I ended up in Canterbury. Where's home? Well... Home is a complicated concept. I'm sure you know. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people know. Mm-hmm. I find when, when this issue comes up in, in you know the various events and conversations I have with people, uh, there are always people who come to say afterwards, that's, that's how I feel, that's exactly right. You know, I feel that. So you shake me awake at 3 o'clock in the morning. Say, where's home? Mm-hmm. I'll say Zanzibar without hesitation. Zanzibar's okay. Oh, but then on the other hand, uh, I've been working, I've been living here and working here for 50 years. My family, my children and my grandchildren live here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that this is not my home is just ridiculous. I just right. won't have it. You know, and I, I, this is my home. So home is complicated. Um, both are home, but it means something different. And this is what I mean when I see, when I meet people, who I meet the great deal of them who, who, who've had this feeling, who want to say, um, you know, I'm from uh, Guatemala, but I've been living here in, in England, and I, I feel this is my home now, but also Guatemala's home, etc. All my parents, my grandparents, you know, we're all capable, I think, of having these multiple places of affiliation, without it being that one has to deny one in order to be the other. Without a doubt. Isn't home really on the page for you too, though? If I look at your body of work and I look at where you sit in each of these novels, it seems to me, and admiring silence is sort of coming front of mind because, you know, you never give your narrator a name. It's a really sort of poppy, modern story that sort of sits aside for me, um, certainly in the context of Afterlives, but I really liked the voice. <laughs> I really, really liked yeah. the voice in Admiring Silence. And it sort of sits in the middle of your books, right? Do I have that yeah. update right? Yeah. yeah. So it was number five, I think. So 
exactly in the middle, actually, because it's 10 novels. Of okay. But at that point, you hadn't been going back regularly. You started going back in 84? Because that's when I could. Right, yeah. okay. But I went back in 84, then I went back, um, I think, in 86, then I went back in 89, then I went back in 89. I went back fairly regularly, originally three years uh, after that. So when, so when I was writing, so when I wrote at Marie Silence in 1995, I think. Uh, so I've been back and forth a, a few times back. But the reason the narrator is not named is because the narrator is himself. He doesn't name himself. He just says what he has to say. I just really like his voice. I just, and it, it really does stand out for me in a way that I see the connection between the very, very early books, Memory of Departure and Paradise and Afterlives, but Admiring Silence, I just, I would like to know more about that guy. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I, I realize you're probably done with that particular character in that particular book, but at the same time, I'm wondering um, where he is now. There is a connection with uh, another novel, okay. The Last Gift. Okay. But this one is uh, is not narrated by that figure. Right. But uh, nor is it really the same figure. But, you know, the, the, the story that he discovers in admiring silence. Yeah. The story that he discovers and that is that he's been ducking and weaving uh, from is the story of his real father as opposed to the, the stepfather who he assumes is his father. And that the real father who left abandoned him. So, right. so actually the last gift follows him. Follows the runaway. Okay. Now I have to move that higher up in the in the you need to reread this immediately pile. But displacement and and parenthood and isolation and loss. It's not just based on the war, certainly in afterlives. I mean, there are other pieces when we first meet Afia. Oh, she's living in terrible circumstances because her parents have died and there's no one to take care of her, and she doesn't even know that her brother exists. I mean, this is something that occurs in all of your novels, this this sort of loss of childhood. I mean, it, and childhood can be a very sort of modern invention. That's, once again, that's a whole nother conversation. But these characters, so many of them, Yusef, I mean, he's 12 when, you know, we meet Ilias when he's, what, 11-ish? Or he's telling his story when he's 11-ish, saying, I was, I was kidnapped. And I was taken away and, and all of this. And it's that very fragile age, that adolescence, where you're grabbing your characters and they're sort of, that's the moment where we see that they're about to have a really difficult go of things. Well, being interested, and I suppose in several, as you said, several of my books, that is the case. I've been interested in the way uh, children become somehow uh, part of uh, processes, mercantile processes, also. processes of exchange between adults, processes of gaining authority and power of others, and, so on. and women. But the, the, mm. the, those are, the, as it were, in, in, mm. in many societies, that, uh, but certainly in 
uh, in these societies in a certain historical periods, maybe not mm -hmm. always to the same extent now, uh, perhaps depending on location. So how women and children become part of uh, processes of exchange between men mm -hmm. uh, to gain authority, to gain power, to, to obey, and so on. So, but I don't think this is new. I think, I mean, you know, you just have to read Dickens to see the way children are uh, constantly being um, handed around or without any volition on their part. But I also, actually, I should say that I've also written about old men. Like, the last gift is about an old man who's dying, so it's the, by the sea, mm -hmm. etc. Um, so it isn't a kind of an obsession about children, but I do think that it is a way of, of of investigating ideas about power. Um, and then also children grow up, so you can follow them and see how they, they are able to retrieve something from their dramatic experiences, like in the case of these two in afterlives. So the, the, the beauty for me of, of something about human character mm -hmm. is precisely that, uh, that people are capable of retrieving something after trauma that there is this capacity, given space, given room, given support. So in the case of Rafia and Hamza, they support each other. And out of that, and Khalifa, of course, he plays a crucial role, mm -hmm. that something can still be saved. And out of that, then the human being becomes complete. Again, oh, as complete as possible under the circumstances. Can we talk about your literary influences for a second? I know you just mentioned Dickens. You've also edited... A compendium on Salman Rushdie and his work. Who else sort of helped make you the writer that you are, and certainly the reader? Hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. Well, you know, like you were saying earlier, I've been reading all my life, uh, even before I knew what I was reading. And then there are other influences, perhaps that are not about reading, but about um, growing up in a certain way, or listening to stories of a certain kind. Um, I think, actually, stories that we hear as uh, children are not given enough uh, consequences you know, when people talk about influences and whatnot. I think for me, certainly, uh, as, as you know from, uh, from reading what I write, uh, stories that were told in Quran school, for example. Uh, yep. Uh, are still with me. And I'm sure this is also true of people, stories told in the uh, Bible classes or whatever. Mm -hmm. Some of these, th these things stick forever. And uh, I think reading enables a certain kind of uh, objective examination of how people achieve, especially if you're a literary uh, teacher like me, you know, teaching literature forever. So you see and admire, and you think, how did he do that? Um, it doesn't mean that you will then go and do that yourself, mm -hmm. but just understanding the, the, the ways in which things can be achieved, understanding the process by which a person reads, I think, um, helps or helped me as a writer. Say, how can I produce the kind of uh, response that I want? Um, if I, as a reader, were to see this, how would I take it? So I think reading experience and reading knowledge and reading various writers and how they do things. Well, sometimes we read, uh, I read things and I think I find myself as I'm reading what I've written. I think, hmm, I'm imitating here. 
I don't want that. So, you know, kind of tone that down a little bit so that it doesn't sound too as close as all that to whoever. I don't know if I would call any of these influences exactly, because influence suggests a certain debt or something like that. I mean, debted in a general way to what I read. But I, I would like to think that uh, out of it comes something your own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how's that for an evasive answer? I think it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an easy question to answer, but at the same time, I'm always sort of fascinated. Because I think we all pull from different influences and no matter where they come from and some, you know, we think about quite a lot and some we sort of say, hmm. Um, and also, and also your, your interest and your um, admiration mm. also changes. Yeah. You know, so, so there's writers that I would have, you know, been raving about when I was 25. I don't think um, I've got them still on my bookshelves, but every now and again, I, I sort of open and start reading and I think, it's not true of every every writer. There are many writers I would turn to, but but certainly you move on. I think there are definitely some writers that I read at exactly the right moment, sort of 18, 20, 22, in there kind of thing, and then went back to them later, and they're just some writers you hit at exactly the right moment when you yeah. need to read them. And, and you don't necessarily need to go back, and then others do really amazing things. Yep. with language and can we just talk to you for a second about your creative process in general it seems to me that you are very clear that you're working on a sentence level um the way the story flows and the way not just the characters interact but also what happens and i mean there were so many lines i i actually i'm going to just show you this i destroy galleys i just i destroy them completely as i read and there are so many moments and so many lines where I was like, oh, that's exactly the world in a sentence. And I really, I love that. So can we just talk about craft for a second? I think I usually have a, uh, an idea of where I'm going. Mm -hmm. I, I like to stop. I mean, I have a rough idea to begin with. Mm -hmm. I thought this is what I want to write about. It then takes um, a while. It may be uh, when I was teaching it maybe it might take a couple of years of just sort of thinking things through and writing things down and reading something else and so on. So the idea grows fairly far by the time I begin. I don't begin writing until I feel I know a destination. Okay. I don't do plots because I don't write like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that kind of work. But I do do notes to myself as I'm writing. Um, and I do organize what I'm writing so it's not sort of in that respect, sentence by sentence, but it is possibly episode by episode. And I do like to work in concentrated phases, mm -hmm. you know, of several weeks rather than, you know, stretch it out and do 10 minutes every day or 15, whatever. So I find that when I'm in it, I'm in it and I stay mm -hmm. in it for, for a good while. Uh, it could be, of course, you interrupted for various reasons, life goes on, you know, that kind of thing. So you may have to right. leave city alone for a couple of weeks. And so, so my working day will be like this, that I would work on the previous day's writing, probably for most of the morning. And I would probably start writing something new, maybe either late in the morning or in the afternoon. I always try and stop when I know what the next thing is going to be. 
mm-hmm. so that when I return the next day, I don't just sit there scratching my head. I know I will go through yesterday's work, make sure I'm happy, as happy as possible for the time being, and then I can move on into what I'd already anticipated from the previous day's work. So in this way, there is a kind of momentum that means I can work in a concentrated way for long periods without getting stuck, without feeling, now what? Although, of course, that happens sometimes, or you think, oh, gosh, that was a load of rubbish. I've got to start again. Uh, let's go back. So I feel I work intensely. I'm sure most writers do. But I'm, I think I don't start writing until I feel relatively well prepared. Do you have a favorite moment from Afterlives? Oh, yeah, yeah, I suppose I do. I do like that opening, that return, that harbor thing. And often in the last few months, of people said to me, can you read something? I find myself going to that passage there yeah. and reading that. Because I think it stands alone. Mm-hmm. So the trouble is reading from a novel, it seems to me, that um, either you um, read from the beginning, mm-hmm. which obviously is where everybody's going to begin right. when they pick up the book. Um, or you have to find a, a moment which can stand alone like that, regardless of. Uh, otherwise, you have to explain. You have to say at this point, this has happened, that has happened, blah 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 blah. Um, so yeah, but do I like? I do like that sort of atmosphere that that passage creates. What's next for you? I was working on something when the when the uh, Swedish Academy kindly uh, did this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually in the middle of working on something. But to be perfectly, I haven't actually had a, a chance to even look at what I was doing. Right. So for the moment, I'm just going along with this, <laughs> uh, enjoying what I can of it. And uh, mm-hmm. when things settle down, if that happens, then I'll be able to return to mm-hmm. what I was doing, if it's still alive. It may not be alive anymore. You'll see when you go back to it. Sure, yeah. I'd heard... You had mentioned this too when when the academy called you. You thought it was a prank that someone you knew was teasing you and saying that you had won a Nobel Prize, and you were, you were just saying no. This what is that true? No. Well, listen. If you were to pick up the phone and somebody said to you, "You have just been awarded a Nobel Prize," what would be the first thing? Who's this? What? What? what who are you? Well, that was my. I'm in no danger of having someone call and say, you well, won a right. Nobel Prize. <laughs> but still. Well, you can imagine that, you know, yes, what, I, I what usually happens, what happens every year, uh-huh. as you know, is that uh, uh, journalists draw up their short lists. Oh, yes. Say, this year it's going to be so-and-so. It's going to be absolutely certain it's going to be a woman, uh, et cetera, et cetera, this kind of thing. And I never figured in those lists. So I, it wasn't even the vaguest, the furthest, back of my mind that uh, um, this was happening. And when the phone rings and somebody says that, you say, what? Surely you must be joking like that. No, I understand. I just, I occasionally I'm good at predicting a Pulitzer or a National Book Award, and occasionally I've gotten things right on the short list for the booker, but um, I have never once been right about <laughs> Nobel Laureate. It's tricky to sort of, even when I see those lists come out from you know, betting agencies and whatnot, I look at it and go, mm, I, I don't have anything to contribute. I have no idea where this is going to go. And sometimes it's wonderful and it's Morrison or it's Ishiguro or it's you and it's delightful. Um, yeah. Uh, but also I think there is something uh, self-righteous and self-justifying about the way journalists do this. 
Mm. Not only do they do the list beforehand, uh, which perhaps might provoke a kind of anticipation in the writers, writers that they name, who then quite undeservedly probably feel disappointed that they haven't been picked. Uh, and it isn't always reasonable who it is that they put on that list. Sometimes you look at the names of that list and say, huh? Uh, I wouldn't have thought of <laughs> It's true. And then afterwards, and then afterwards, it's a sense of, oh dear, they didn't pick so and so. It's nice to be asked to dance, though, and it's very nice that you have a Nobel. <laughs> it's very nice indeed, yeah. I know, it's wonderful. So then I'm just going to thank you for being on the show and let folks know that After Lives is out. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Abdul Razak Gurna, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, and Afterlives is out now. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic titles today based off of Nobel Prize winners, because today's episode was special and about uh, one of our more recent Nobel laureates. So my name is Mark. I'm Becky. And we're coming to you from our Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, We've got a couple of books to go over and a couple of authors to really shine a light on. Uh, Becky, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. Of course. Thank you, because I could talk about this author all the doodah day. (laughs) And that is Toni Morrison. (laughs) Woof. I love her so much. She's uh, just, she's incredible. Um, She deserves all the accolades uh, for her body of work. Um, she won the Nobel Prize in Literature. She just paints these beautiful parables of the American experience. And the book that I chose specifically is one of her newer titles called Home. Uh, this is almost like an American odyssey. Uh, think of, you know, Homer's The Odyssey. But it charts the journey of a man who is very broken and uh, is on his way to rebuilding and healing. Uh, we follow uh, a gentleman named Frank Money, who is just returned from his time in the Korean War. The trauma of his experience there has just left him bleakly apathetic. And coming back to a predominantly racist homeland is not helping the issue. And he's essentially a shell of a man. Um, he is singed and his outlook is pretty much non-existent. And a turn of tides comes in the form of his sister. Her own life is shot through with troubles of her own. Frank has decided to rescue her and take her back to their hometown in Georgia. And on this journey, on the way, he is able to unlock and tap into a courage that he really expected to never see again or experience. It's a divine book. Uh, She is a divine writer. Uh, You could pick up any of her titles and be transported and transcended. Uh, I love her so much. Home is a great place to start if you've never picked up any of her books. Uh, So please check it out when you get a chance. Becky, do you have one for us? I do. Um, So the person that I thought of uh, for this was Alice Monroe. Oh, yeah. Uh, she won the um, Nobel Prize for Literature in 2013, and uh, she is a Canadian short story writer. She is known as the Canadian Chekhov, uh, which is uh, because in her books, uh, her stories, plot is secondary. 
it's really about life happening and the characters. Um, she is also someone who, like Chekhov, was frustrated and obsessed with the the idea that we can't stop time or slow it down. It's just going to keep going. Her books are so fantastic. Um, like I said, they're all short story collections. While they are mostly fiction, she does in the book that I thought of for this one, uh, it's Dear Life, which is one of her more recent books. Uh, she actually includes four semi-autobiographical stories in it. So we get a glimpse of... Um, of yeah, of her growing up, um, and it's it's just makes it even more special. What is special about her is that she's telling you know ordinary everyday stories about ordinary everyday people, and she does it in such a simple, accessible way that leave you just you're you're in it. You are because you're looking at that person, and either you totally understand what they're doing because you've been in a similar situation or you know someone who's been in a situation like that or you can just envision yourself there. She just does such a great job of getting you and and that you're then thinking about everything that they're going through. And it's, oh, she's wonderful. What I love about Dear Life and this collection specifically is that it's about a specific moment in time. Every story is about this moment of whether it's a, a chance meeting or a choice to either do something or not do something, um, or just a twist of fate, and then the resulting consequences after. It's so good, because then you are just, you're reflecting then on these universal themes of why do we, why do we lie to the people we love? Um, Why are people unfaithful? Um, why is it that in that moment when I could have done something and I didn't, and now I'm going to stew on it for the rest of my life on why I couldn't stand up or, and do that thing that I should have done. It's uh, universal themes and they're so great. Um, and, and what's wonderful, again, these are short stories. So you read them in an hour or, or so, and then you are chewing on it for the rest of the day, possibly the rest of the week, maybe longer. Her descriptions also of the places that these are taking place are so wonderful. She, like I said, is from Canada and she actually grew up on Lake Huron. And as someone who lived in uh, Michigan for a chunk of time, she does a great job. She uh, talks about the waves being frozen and turned to ice as if they were falling, that it's not a flat lake, that the lake is, is frozen in time. And, and I, I actually have memories of, of climbing the frozen waves on Lake Huron. It's, oh, it, and she just took me right there. And I was right in it. And was like, I know exactly where we are. Tell me more. She's so good. She's so wonderful. Like I said, all short story collections. If you have to pick up one, definitely go with Dear Life. You will not regret it. Oh. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Yeah, I also remember um, growing up in Michigan mm-hmm. uh, when the lake freezes over and it's just, it looks like a photograph that just gets snapped. Yeah. It's it's incredible. It's so, yeah. Alison Monroe and Toni Morrison Such in one episode. Great. Oh, oh my gosh. Crushed it. Yes. Oh, well, that's all we have. <laughs> uh, thank you so that's much. That's all we have. That's that's a lot. We That's gave you so much. Quite a bit. Um, <laughs> and plenty for you to chew on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is all we have for today's Weird. episode of uh, <laughs> Board Over. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure to give us a rating for support and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow our socials at Barnes & Noble. 
My name is Mark. My name is Becky. And you can follow our home store at BN Westchester. Thanks again, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.